Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Welcome to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Song of the day. Really record of the day. Crazy fat boy song. And my guest this evening, as promised, Sarah Thornton. Hey, Sarah, how are you doing? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. And now, the, the business reason, like the, I don't know, the reason why you're here officially is... The Cloverdale Playhouse, of which, yes, it's y'all have a Dolls House upcoming production. It starts opening Thursday. Thursday night. So close to being open. Yes, we open Thursday this upcoming a Dolls House. Yes, it's a it's a huge, huge thing because this play is kicking off our seventh season. Yeah. Of Game Changers, as we're calling it, affectionately calling it, the season of Game Changers. And it's a it's a big undertaking. This is not an easy play by any stretch. It's three acts? It's three, it's three acts, but we're doing it as two acts. Okay, good. But it, is, it was written as three acts. You know, Shakespeare's written in five acts. So oh, it is technically yeah. three acts, but, but we will only have one intermission, so... And I did not know much about this play before you reached out to me. I, I read up a little bit on it uh, with the themes. I have a fascinating quote from Ibsen himself in an 1898 Women's Rights League where he gave a speech. And it's really good because it's kind of where I'm coming from mm-hmm. with this whole question. But what went into saying that this is a game changer? We're going to put this on at the Playhouse, this particular play. Well, I don't like to think we pick any of our shows with any kind of hidden agendas or anything like that. Um, For me, the season began, the idea for the season began because I just really wanted to do A Doll's House. And I started thinking about why I wanted to do A Doll's House specifically. And and for me, it was one of those plays that the first time I experienced it, it changed me a a lot. It made me think, I, I just had never seen a play that, and I'm never going to spoil this ending for you guys this whole right. show I promise but the ending is incredibly controversial and it's and it's shocking and it makes you feel something whether you you no one can leave that play unaffected either you love it you hate it you're empowered you're angry you're you there's no complacency allowed and that's the case with most of Ibsen's plays um which is so he's really the game changer part of it but this play particularly was a huge game changer because for all intents and purposes this was the first modern drama feminist heroine uh to be written because it was uh, so ahead of its time this play was written in 1879 by a Norwegian playwright and it's you know, done all the time now all over the world. There are a million different translations of it and a million's an exaggeration. A, a lot of translations yes. of it, but it, it's it's so timely and it continues to be timely. But right now with everything going on in the country, 
for women's rights mm. and the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement and all of these things. It just is striking a major chord with everyone involved. So When you say controversial ending to it was very controversial at the time, right? It was very controversial at the time. The audiences were furious, men and women alike. Mm. It was very controversial. And I think that some people today will be furious. Right. Now, I, I, I imagine it's not as controversial, say, as the end of Euripides Medea. <laughs> <laughs> not quite <laughs> yeah, not quite that controversial, but Ibsen, the next play that he wrote after A Doll's House was was Ghosts, which was banned in several countries, and that had a very um, difficult ending as well, and, de- and dealt with some very difficult topics. So it, it is it is sort of a characteristic of Ibsen's plays that he exposes the raw nerves a bit of things. Yeah, and this is where I want to go, and it's actually it says it's a speech. This is really three paragraphs. It's not much. Um, And it's a speech Ibsen gave in 1898, a speech at the banquet of the Norwegian League for Women's Rights. And it was um, essentially them honoring him. They gave a toast to him. I said, great job with the play, man. (laughs) And he came out and said, uh, I'm not a member of the Women's Rights League. Whatever I've written has been without any conscious thought of making propaganda. I've been more the poet and less the social philosopher and people generally seem inclined to believe. I thank you for the toast but must disclaim the honor of having consciously worked for the women's rights movement. I'm not even quite clear as to just what this women's rights movement really is. To me, it has seemed a problem of mankind in general. And if you read my books carefully, you'll understand this. True enough, it is desirable to solve, and this is the language from 1898, <laughs> the woman problem, uh, along with all the others, but that has not been the whole purpose. My task has been the description of humanity. And he goes on to say, I, I toast y'all back, all the best in what, what y'all are doing. Um, and it's kind of, I, I bring that up because it's kind of where I find myself uh, with the Me Too movement, Time's Up. Um, over the years, I've had, you know, it waxes and wanes where I'll, I'll read more feminist writing, um, I especially had interested with like the libertarian feminist I knew and was reading a lot of their stuff. But when I step back, I'm, somebody asked me the other day, what, how do you feel about feminism? And I'm like, well, it was difficult for me to answer because I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? It's, there are so many different little camps. There's different interpretations. There's difference between the generations, of course. And it, it's sort of where I uh, end up, I think, brushing on... Uh, Essentially, a lot of the things going on, I end up agreeing with most of the agenda, uh, but often I don't necessarily agree with the tone. Anyway, I, I kind of want to give you the floor in what you're seeing with, you know, Me Too and Times Up. Number one, what's the difference between the two? I'm, I'm aware of Me Too. Is Times Up really the same thing? Or it's similar, but I think that the mentality behind why they started it at least is similar. But I think. With Me Too, it's more about, and I know it's a controversial thing and it's a difficult thing for a lot of people to participate in because it's admitting something that not a lot of people feel comfortable talking about or admitting. Uh, and it's, and it's, you know, every woman's decision, every person's decision, you know, men have, are victims of this as well. Um, but it, it was more about putting a megaphone in front of a problem that's been around for a long time. Um, you know, people think it's it's a lot more rare than it is. So with Me Too, it became, look at all these people I know that have experienced this. 
uh, and how and and it's shocking, it, you know, right. how often it does happen. So I think that's sort of what the the importance of Me Too was. And then Time's Up has a little bit more of an empowered thing. Um, it's it's not so much about awareness of a problem that's affecting a lot of people, but it's it's more of taking o- an ownership of you know we're going to move forward with this now. It's more proactive. I would I mean they're both important in their own ways. Um, you know, but with, but it, with everything going on, you know, with, uh, nevertheless, she persisted with reclaiming my time. All of these Mm -hmm. things are happening right now. It's an, it's an exciting time. It's a little bit scary, I'm sure, you know, but I think we're riding a wave right now of, we have the microphone, so let's use it. Yeah. And I think this obviously, I see if you agree with this. I don't think Weinstein and that big piece on him comes out if Hillary Clinton is elected president. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying it's some agenda to take out Trump. I think it's the Axis Hollywood tape and some of the reporting New York Times did. It created this, oh, Trump got away with it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that led to people going, man, we need to examine more. You could be right. the, The, oh, that tape... Yeah, was very upsetting, but that's one of several examples that Trump, you know, he's that's not the first nor the only time he said anything disparaging about women or, or anything like that. So I think all of those collective evidences mm-hmm. perhaps lit a fire for some people, as it should have, you know? It's just that the... It seems that it brought it up for millions watching the presidential election, and then uh, the fallout from Weinstein and then the degree to which the Weinstein, it just, the story just got weirder and weirder. And then this week we have Uma Thurman's own story came out, uh, which is pretty remarkable um, to how much she she did in the moment stand up for herself. Right. She's like, I still want to work. And, and right. you know, I'm, I, we built Pulp Fiction together. We built Miramax up, a big deal. But she realized pretty quickly, I don't want to be around Harvey. Right. But then his tactic is to say, oh, look at all these photos of you at parties and gala events. And, I mean, you've been in the acting world, and uh, I'm not trying to pry anything out of you if if you don't want to share it. But I'd imagine whether it's something like the Me Too issue and sexual assault or harassment or some other politics going on, like somebody who's in power, a director, a producer does something and makes you go, oh, what an Mm -hmm. Um, a-hole. But you still have to work with them. What is is that like? That's the trap, right? Hmm. That's what makes it, well, that's one of the reasons that it's so so upsetting is that it rarely happens when it's not a power play. Right. And and having that leverage of your job or your reputation or your career or your anything is is why this stuff's allowed to continue to happen under the radar, because people are afraid to speak up about it because they don't want to lose their job or they don't want their career or their reputation tarnished, you know, and and a lot of times the the backlash of of admitting things like this is you get criticized, you know, slut shaming, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. You know, and that's not to say that it it shouldn't be addressed when it happens, but it definitely justifies why so many people are hesitant to come out with this information when it happens or ashamed of it or embarrassed by it or or blaming themselves or, you know, all of all of that is such a big part of of it, which is why the Me Too movement, I think, was 
at least for me, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. It was eye opening because of how many people were in it together. Right. You know, and it made it a little bit safer to say, you know, me too. It's it's not something that's easy to talk about for a lot of women. I don't think for any women it's easy to talk about. Right, especially if it is traumatic and it has been something you've kept. And, and still to this day, um, you can get that backlash, like you're saying, like slut-shaming. I and some I fall victim, um, or I I slip over my own mentality. Like I don't even think about shaming somebody for that. Um, I I I guess the glib way, the crass way, but is I love sluts. I'm a slut for sluts. <laughs> oh my goodness! No, and not that like I I go out and do that. I'm a hermit. Um, <laughs> but it's more like I don't understand why somebody would ever shame somebody for that. And then I go read social media. I'm like, oh goodness, that exists. Oh, it definitely uh, exists, it, and 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 it, it exists at a level which is terrifying to me. It starts at such an early age that we've just been ingrained as a society. Right. You know, it's it's and it's everything. It's the way that we dress. It's the way that, you know, we carry ourselves in our business meetings. It's I mean, I'm a feminist. I'm not like one of those scary ones, I hope, in in the I fact didn't... that I to me, it's, it's upsetting. Yeah. The way that society's set set this up for a long time, which which is why. I'm going to take it back to your thing about Ibsen because that I've heard that quote from Ibsen right. about I didn't write this to be a women's movement go women thing. He's writing a story about a marriage, and it truly is that simple. But one of the things that Ibsen is brilliant at is uh, secrets. All mm. of his characters have have secrets and and things they're afraid to admit, and things that at the time that his plays were written were dangerous to admit as you know laws were stacked against women oh, yeah. heavily women were considered a fourth of a man you know they so for a woman to do anything with business or money or anything was dangerous and so that made women sort of get put into this little box into as it were a doll's house um so so really the story of a doll's house is a is a beautiful and heartbreaking and tragic disintegration of the sh of a marriage and it begins what looks to be a gorgeous happy household with three gorgeous children and a couple who's very much in love and he's just been promoted and it's almost christmas and everything's wonderful mm. and then very slowly you, you start to see that they haven't been honest with each other that she's got secrets that uh, not to give away the whole story, but some things come out that are damaging and dangerous. And and her journey through navigating what's going to happen to me when this happens, what's going to happen when he finds out, what's going to happen when. And her fear and her, the way that affects her psyche. And, and slowly but surely through all of this, she learns something about herself that drives to a very controversial ending so well and i love actually that it comes out of ibsen saying i didn't write this as a political play i wrote it as a study of humanity and humanity's mm -hmm. problems but it, it it almost gives it a a more honest take that he's he wasn't coming with some pre 
fabricated political agenda. He's just writing about people. And he goes on to say in that speech is that people often read in their own ideas, but that's the whole point, that these folks, the reader is often more poetical than the poet. And this is the point of, I think, what he's, I'll put it simply, good art, Mm -hmm. is that if you tap into what is real and maybe heighten it a little bit. It allows everybody to go, oh, I've experienced that in this right. way or this similar fashion. Right. And it's so much of what y'all do over the playhouse. Well, it's what I love about art. It's what yeah. I love about it, that no two people can experience this story the same way, that certain things will strike you differently than the person sitting next to you. I, it's, I love this play, and, and I wanted to do this play not because it's controversial and not because of a political agenda. Although it, it is very timely. I wanted to do this play because it changed me as a, as an audience member and as an artist. It just changed me. And no, I sat next to people that are working on this play hmm. have disagreements and arguments about. But do you really think it's her, or do you really think it's him, or how can that be? And everyone disagrees, and and things upset upset people about right. this play. And it's not all oh women, women, women. Although it it is appropriate for that. Yes. But as as you said, and as Ibsen said, that's not why he wrote it. And it's not the agenda or the goal of the story. The storytelling is about peering into, into this world and this relationship and these people and, and seeing how they navigate what happens to them. You know, and it's and the set that Scott Grinstead, who's our technical director, he designed this gorgeous set that looks like you're looking into an actual dollhouse. Mm. And it and it's just it's perfect. It's exactly what it should be because you're spying into these people's perfect little lives. You know, dolls houses in real life are very per- perfect. They're meticulously put together with perfectly crafted little furniture. Right. And it all looks great, but it's not real. Exactly. And I think everybody can relate to, especially in this day and age, like with Instagram and Facebook, and you can get a snapshot of somebody, literally a snapshot of somebody's life, and he's like, oh, look how beautiful and amazing all the things they have and that smile on their face they have the perfect life but they still i'm sure feel like crap in the morning on occasion i mean i mean we we're almost peering into dollhouses on social media and not getting to how messy and complicated life can be and then when the messy and complicated stuff comes up people don't deal with it or don't discuss it very well right well you know and no one wants to admit that things aren't always perfect you know they want to appear appearances are very deceiving sometimes, you know, and and that's another thing that Ibsen's plays all over the place are as an actor, you want to work on Ibsen, you mm. want to work on Ibsen because number one, his his words are beautiful. Even all these translations that are done, his his stories are beautiful. But it's as an actor, it's a huge challenge and hopefully incredibly rewarding to get to work on Ibsen because you get to go places that a lot of times you don't get to go on stage. You have to delve into the depths of your soul, right. you know, and, and it's not to say you just get, like the audience isn't going to be beat over the head with a depressing hammer the whole play, but it, it's it's effective. It's incredibly effective and it takes great bravery, I think, to tackle stories like this. Well, and y'all do an incredible job over at the Playhouse. I, I, I saw The Crucible and it affected me emotionally. Also very appropriate for today's times. Right. Um, also, uh, Little Women. I, I have to admit to you, I felt a little uncomfortable. In Little Women? Yes, because <gasps> I walked in and it's like I'm the only 20-something guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's mostly moms with their daughters, appropriately so. And there's like one or two husbands or dads that are there. But it's just like me. So I went and sat in the back corner. And I was like, I, so, and I enjoyed it. It was very well done. Um, and I, I think it brought up a lot of great points. And my, my point is, y'all do a great job of of creating that those questions of really grabbing people emotionally right and i love how intimate the setting is it don't it, it really pulls you in it lends itself to introspection because you're right there yes. it's happening right there around you well and uh i on the crucible topic uh there has been and i don't think it defines the whole me too thing going on but like we saw with the Aziz and Sari story, mm -hmm. that there were all sorts of backlash for me. Like I saw the Young Turks talking about this. Um, I, that, I can't remember the female anchor's name who was on HLN. Like you've damaged the movement. It, it got a, a reaction out of people where it wasn't like, of course you went through something. It got a big argument going. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and another point of reference would be like John Stewart when he was trying to promote a night of too many stars dealt with autism and he was at a q a and and somebody yelled out did you know about louis ck it was some guy who said that to him and he's just kind of he hadn't seen the stories yet so he's like what are you talking about he's flippant with the kid mm -hmm. and then he comes around and realizes oh my god louis did what and but then everybody's assuming like you must have known John. Right. right. And I, again, it was appropriate that you did the Crucible at the end of uh, last year, or how long ago was it? It feels like forever ago. It was last February. But it, it you take, I, I think, um, there is something rotten out there, but then everybody becomes suspicious of one right. another. Well, witch hunts are a real thing. Mob mentality and witch hunts are a real thing, you know, which is a difficult thing, I think, in, in the progress of women's movements and things like that because for a very long time it's a he said she said thing and and I read I read something in the New York Times about the Me Too movement a while back where I wish I could quote it accurately but it, it said something as if um, one woman complains about sexual harassment against one man and they weigh it very differently than five women complain about the same man because each woman counts as a fourth or a fifth of a person compared to the damage that will be done to that man's career. Right. Never mind the damage that's done to the woman's life and career. But if one woman complains, maybe she's making it up. Maybe they had a history. Maybe she's got sour grapes about something else. And, and maybe that could be true. It could be. I'm sure there have been instances of that. You know, but maybe she's not, and it and until five other women chime in and say me too, right? It's always a question mark, right? Nobody's going to take it seriously, and nobody's going to deal with it, right? Well, and it's it makes me think that the accusation itself is has I think the accusation and across the spectrum um, has such power. And it's like if you are accused of being a rapist, number one, mm -hmm. or you sexually assaulted somebody, uh, or if you that accusation, I think people go, "Oh my God!" I, and so it, I think, leads to people wanting to, to say, "I I didn't do that." I think that's why people sort of uh, try to obscure the fact right. that. But here's the problem: that if you did do it, 
and you don't want people to know because it does ruin people's reputations, mm-hmm. you're also going to obscure. Right. So it's it's very difficult. And in all my conversations with folks, I I sit here like on the Aziz thing. Like my cousin Jessica was very like Joey. Didn't you read the part about? It? He kept putting his fingers in her mouth, and I'm like. And I finally said to her, I think Aziz is at fault. Yes. He was way too pushy and desperate. I think also Grace, I believe is her name they used in the article. She also needs to stand up for herself. Like, tell him no and, and like, leave. Or just, like, because it seems in that story, once she did say no, he, like, okay. Right. Um, and then also the way that it was carried out in in the news, the way it was written, uh, there were a lot of added details that I think took away from what Grace went through. Like, right. I didn't get to choose the wine at dinner. Right, which is a little ridiculous. Right. But, but I guess then the solution to this, because pro- this problem is a problem. Yes. What, how do we judge what's real, what's not? And now, you know, everyone's looking at their hands and freaking out, uh, you know, and sometimes it's unnecessary. Everyone's afraid of the witch hunt, right? I don't want to do anything. So, I, I mean, then then we have to all look at what do we do to repair that, to clarify the lines. And I think I think we're getting there. You know, I think it's it's not going to happen quickly. Not, no. no major problems like this of equality and you know, any fights for rights, civil rights or anything have taken time and it's there have been good moments and bad moments you know but i think um an awareness is the first step an awareness of how things certain actions are perceived an awareness of what is it is okay and what isn't okay um and until we all come to some sort of agreement there you know it's gonna there are gonna be moments of aziz there are gonna be moments of misunderstanding and and not everyone's gonna react to any of these things the same way well and i i think one mistake some people are making not everybody and i'm getting this from the point you just made which i think is correct is that this issue and this problem isn't going to be solved by some big splash of a headline and an article and an expose. Uh, This actually will be solved by people getting to know and talking to one another, like reaching out to the people. We talked about this the last time I was here about a whole different topic, but it's the same thing. Communication. Communication. There has to be a, a peaceful way for us all to sit together and figure this stuff out, you know, and, and the media does not help all the time. Well, and it's amazing how politics makes the sort of the tribal fight even worse. And I think this is a problem like with the with any discussion about climate change or any discussion about just economics purely as economics not with once you introduce oh behind this argument is a big game for power and political control it makes people act even worse where they can't talk honestly um and it's a shame because sometimes great points made by people in politics get lost in that fight um so we got to take a quick break okay and we're going to come back continue this discussion again my guest this evening is sarah thornton she's the artistic director at the cloverdale playhouse get your tickets to go see a doll's house opens up this thursday and we'll be reminding folks how they can do that and all the different uh show times but you're listening to the joey clark radio hour talk to you in just a few minutes
Yes, I admit I was dancing to this in my vehicle earlier this morning. Dancing right now. I mean, not as good as Christopher for uh, walking. <laughs> By the way, I didn't, I didn't know this, but you know, the news came out with the Natalie Wood case mm-hmm. with Robert Wagner was kind of being. He's now a person of interest. Playing a shocking. The tabloids been saying that for years. <laughs> uh, Christopher Walken was on that boat. Wow. When that happened, I was like, whoa. <laughs> now I can't watch Pulp Fiction again. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah, yes, you can. <laughs> no, and I, I, I thought after the, all the Kevin Spacey stuff, I, I can't watch Baby Driver, which is one of my favorite movies of the past year. And yeah. my roommates hadn't seen it. We pulled up. Still a fantastic movie. Right. And I love that Atlanta's kind of becoming a filming hub of the South. Yeah, it's a big deal. Atlanta's getting yeah. huge. Yeah, it's, it's unreal. Um, but... There's something uh, I wanted to bring up to you, it, and I was telling you off air, I, this professor named Dr. Hunt, Stacy Hunt, over at Auburn, uh, and I would argue with her, I took, uh, what, gender and comparative politics, uh, I took pretty much political feminist classes with her, uh, and I enjoyed them. Like, we had a few students who would sit there, and they wouldn't argue with me, because I'm pretty good at listening to most anybody. Uh, but they'd be like, oh, Joey, that's unreal. That's not how I was taught. I'm like, I hear you. I hear you. I'm going, get over it, you snowflake. So a lot of people would drop out of the class. and right. But I l- really loved arguing with her in a, in a good faith manner. And she had us read this uh, one piece where it talked about um, that women shouldn't buy into this mythical notion of free will. This is a larger societal issue, all the forces. It's the... You know, it's the whole cage, not just the wires in front of you. Interesting. And I, I looked at her and said, if free will's largely mythical, then how are there feminists? I mean, how has there been any advancement? Did it all of a sudden just kind of happen socially? Or does it take one playwright? Does it take one or two people standing up and actually talking about these things? And here's my question to you. With all this coming out with uh, Me Too, Time's Up... I think other advancements and people spotlighting issues and things that need to be advanced, um, I almost think that is actually a sign that things have definitely gotten better. Oh, yeah. Not in like, oh, everybody needs a gold star and brownie points, but it's that women now are in a position to be able to talk about this stuff and not have the repercussion. Well, there's still some repercussions, but it certainly has been progress. You know, I that's one of the things with a doll's house that I think is going to be so effective for women particularly to watch how in 1870 how women are treated and perceived and what little choice they had in anything in their lives and how how very minimal credit they got for any ability at all. Right. You're supposed to be a wife and you're supposed to be a mother and you're supposed to wear the pretty dresses and be impressive at the party and that is all we expect of you. You know, and and in the play, there are a lot of times where the her husband will say something to her, and the hair on the back of my neck stands mm. up because it's so condescending. Right. But at the time, 
it was that was normal. That was the norm, which is which is why that character of Nora became so iconic because she addresses that head on at at, at a at a point in her story. She realizes this is wrong, you know. And and at that time in 1870, nobody would speak out like that. You know, I I had I had was. Walking back through my childhood memories mm. of of what I wanted to be when I grew up, and and I you know I wanted to be all sorts of ridiculous things like an elf in Santa's workshop and a marine biologist, which isn't ridiculous, but I'm afraid of the ocean, so it kind of is for me, <laughs> um, you know. But but I wanted to be the CEO of Heinz Ketchup at the age of gosh, I don't know, nine. Nice, okay. But not because I wanted to be the CEO of Heinz Ketchup, but because I I read an article that said it was one of the highest paid jobs in America. Right. And at the the age of nine, that needed to be something I tried for, I guess, the highest paid job. You wanted all the money. And then in reality, I became an actor. So obviously (laughs) I I changed my thinking. But, uh, you know, at at that age, at that time, it never would have crossed my mind that I couldn't be the CEO of anything, you know, and, and and that's progress to me. That little girls now look at Hillary Clinton and go, I could run for president. Right. That's progress. That's huge progress. And and none of it's happened quickly, you know. It's taken a lot of time to just get us here, but but the fact is that we're still fighting. Because we're not there yet, you know, but we've certainly come a long way. Well, and at, at times, I actually read the piece you wrote for, was it Midtown, mm-hmm. Montgomery Living? Yeah. And the one thing you said, and it's not really me disagreeing, it's more, uh, I'm bringing in a lot of stuff I've been reading lately mm-hmm. about how I need to improve my own life, how I can, for instance, I came to the realization that, for, you know, two years, I'm like, okay, I don't want my mom anymore. Very difficult, very tragic. Of course. But then it hit me just two weeks, or not this past weekend, the one before, and it took a Cat Stevens song, Father and Son, for some reason, to bring it up in my mind. Like, I don't have a home anymore. Hmm. Like, I have a house I live in. I can still go see my dad at the beach. But yeah. the home and the family dynamic that existed for 20-something years, it's gone. Which isn't to, it wasn't a despairing thought. It was like, okay, you need to pick yourself up, face the, pick the pain you want. What sort of struggles do you want in life? What's worth it? And I think you had a line, it's it's a shame that these things have to be fought for. Mm-hmm. And my brain did this. I went, it's a shame that the, the sort of bias is there. Right. That the, the obstacles or the obstacles are in obstacles. the way. But... I, I almost wanted to say, can't we relish the fight? Oh, and I think we are. Yeah. You know, of course we can. It, it is a shame that any of any civil liberties need to be fought for, you know, and, and in America, I feel like we're fighting for civil liberties that uh, other countries had figured out age, you know? Right. So I, I don't, I'm not sure why that is, but maybe because we're a lot younger of a country. I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, but the, but there is something really exciting about the fight. You know, I went to the I went to the march downtown, and then I turned around as soon as it was over and went to rehearsal for a doll's house. You know, <laughs> and I thought, wow, this has been a woman power day. You know, but and it was great. It was amazing. I got to walk with my mom, and there were all these little girls holding signs, and it was inspiring. And it and it makes you feel being active helps. You know, you're doing something. Now, if you, because I saw photos of the march, and I said this the other day on air, I'm like, I saw that and was like, I don't disagree, but like, I wouldn't, that's not me, 
Like, I'm not going to go out and march, but in the same way, I'm not going to go march with the pro-life movement either. Right. And it's not like, I'm more, I'm the hermit who likes to talk and be the devil's advocate often. Uh, but if you were, say, had a chance, and I think you do at this moment, to talk to somebody who, uh, you know, has the, all these Democrats and the feminists, or blah, 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 blah. But if you wanted to say, you know, you were with little girls across generations with your mom, if you had to boil it down and you wanted to reach somebody who might disagree with you politically, what what did that day mean to you? What does this ongoing struggle really mean to you? I think a lot of things, but I think the biggest thing is that there's something, there's a future worth fighting for. You know, um, my my mother fought for me and now I'm fighting not that I have a daughter but if I did but there are a lot of little girls that I'm hoping they're going to have a better future than you know you hope that the next generation gets to benefit from your fight you know and and just as I've benefited from the women that came before me just like I could think at the age of nine I could be a CEO you know uh, so I think that's part of the feeling that you get from it um, a, a sense that you're not by yourself, a sense that look at all of these other people who are walking with you on the same path to the same goal, you know, um, I think all of that. And I think also just broadening awareness that there are, this is an issue, right. you know, whether or not it one walk up the street to the Capitol changes the course of history. I, you know, it, it has in the past. Whether it does this time, who knows, but... I wonder what you think of this, because I I said that same thing years ago. Like, I'm just not a March guy. I don't, like, somebody, even when I was in my big libertarian phase, I somebody handed me a Ron Paul sign, and I was I told to hold it, and I just felt like an idiot. Not because it was Ron Paul, I just don't like standing there with a sign as people That's walk okay. by me. And I'm like, what is it with all these marches? I haven't seen them accomplish anything. And guy who's pretty damn good on social media trolling uh, posted the wash of Marchington or March on Washington. <laughs> um, Marchington. Uh, you know, with MLK. And I'm like, okay. Exactly. But I almost feel like that there is, ever since those incredible moments in the 60s, People have wanted to recreate that, both sides. And I almost wonder, are you going to be able to recreate that in the same way, or was that almost a very unique moment in time? And this is not to tell people don't do it. Right. it it's just, it, there seems to be like, that was the model. That got people's attention. That did incredible things. We can recreate it. Right. And sometimes I wonder, can you? Like yeah. when Glenn Beck did it. Like, he, they had a lot of people there. The Tea Party had a lot, hundreds of thousands of people there on the National right. Mall. But I'm like, doesn't seem like it's going to go down in the history books the same way as, you know, Dr. King. And it may not, <laughs> uh, you know, but you never know. Maybe they thought the same thing when they were, you know, I just think there's, I fully understand not wanting to march. I yeah. fully understand that. But I think that you, you affect change in other ways you're doing it right now you know you yeah. you open up conversations and you ask the tough questions and and that's just as important as putting on your running shoes and walking up the street you know so i think it's just being active however you are able and however where your strengths are and in whatever way you can be you know? i i have an aversion to crowds well and unless it plays into my 
narcissism. <laughs> like if I if I'm on a stage and there's a big crowd, yeah, oh, they're paying attention to me. Sure. But when I'm just part of the crowd, yeah, ugh. yeah, I'm not very good. I, you know, I lived in New York and I'm still not very good in in big crowded rooms. <laughs> I just I'm not. You know, and I'm an actor, so it's different when I'm on stage and I'm being someone else. But when I'm me, it's intimidating, mm. and I need to go home and and put on my slippers and, and not for a little while afterwards to recover. But you know. Um, yeah, so I get it. I get it. It's not everybody's mm. cup of tea. Do you think that's why me, all these music festivals are they trying to recreate Woodstock? Is that <laughs> some of it is actually, and they don't they don't succeed. I um, mean, and even when Woodstock tried to recreate Woodstock, what is it, in the nineties? Oh yeah, no, that was a unique moment in history. Yeah. And it would be great if something like that happens again. It's not going to happen unless you try. Right. Uh, but you know, I, I'm worried. If, there's all the talks about millennials. You know. And actually, it's the kids younger than that. Do and we qual? I'm I'm not sure if we qualify. I'm 29. Well, I'm older than you are. Okay, fair so enough. I definitely don't qualify. I think it's from like 1980 to born 1980 to 2000 or so. Oh, okay. So you you're coming of age in the new millennia. I gotcha. Uh, whereas I think the younger folks, much younger, are Generation Z or whatever name they're going to give to that hodgepodge of people. Uh, but I worry about them. Like, I had one comedian say, I, I was listening to on a podcast, say he went to go to a college, and it felt like he was working in old folks' home. Mm. Like, he felt like, the I'm 50-something, I should be the guy wagging my finger, you crazy kids. But it was them wagging their finger at me. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? And, and, and part of that's good, but also I think another part of it is there are a lot of people boys and girls, men and women, I think feel like cagey. Mm. Like they don't know how to talk about this stuff. Right. And they don't, I think also there has been, uh, and I'm not longing for the days of like long courtship and arranged marriage. And oh, no. there's a reason that the divorce rate is so high. And it's because you can have, the worst thing, folks, is you have unity like it's a doll's house. It's you have this image of everything's all right, and it's just a vision underneath the surface. It's right. terrible. Right. But uh, I think because of the new freedoms people have found, the shifting changes in the economy, who can actually bring home money, um, that society in general has not learned how to deal with this. We're, right. we're almost haven't created the language to deal with it. That I think you're absolutely right. I think thing, things not talked about for so long. It's going to be a rough road when they start being talked about, which is, to go back to the play, exactly mm. how that shakes down, you know? Something that would never be discussed suddenly is ripped out into the open. Right. And then what happens, you know? Well, and I'm looking forward to uh, who, whomever pops up and gains some sort of status or influence. I like that it's moving to online and to YouTube or other platforms mm -hmm. where... Uh, you get intellectual discussions that aren't restrained. Like, you know, my hour is actually pretty open. We had that one break. We get to talk for like 48 minutes. Yeah. Okay. That's rare in radio. But then on TV, it's even worse. You've got, like, CNN had on like five, six, seven, nine people a panel. And so everybody's got two minutes to get their zinger in. Right. And it's a 10, 15 minute segment. 
you can't talk about these issues, any issues, in a robust or interesting way. Whereas when you go online, and hopefully I'm trying to bring it back to radio, you can have long-form discussions. Mm-hmm. There are people actually hash things out. And that gives me a lot of hope moving yeah, forward. Absolutely. I mean, and then, of course, you've got trolls, which are well, no fun for anyone. True. But, uh... But yeah, I think social media and the amount of information at people's fingertips, one thing I love about it is that you can fact check, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. I love that because because yes, we are all in our little bubbles and we hear a lot of the things we want to hear from our people that think like-mindedly, you know? Go to imright.com, yeah. But then I'm a big fan of going, okay, this is how I perceive this story. What are the what's the other side saying about this? You know, and oh, and it's incredible the spin either in either direction. You know, so I do think that the internet has some has some redeeming qualities. It has some redeeming qualities. <laughs> well, and also though, people get in their little bubble. Sure. I was talking to Tom Riello about that the other night. Where we're not reading the same stories and. Uh, like one of my favorite quotes, uh, and tell me if you ever do an Oscar Wilde play. Oh, um, is it like Salome or something? Interesting. That's I mean, I crazy. Love Oscar Wilde. Uh, he said the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Right. And I, I think sometimes there, people rely too much on. I found a study that confirms what I already thought. And you can find all sorts of studies, sure. and there are actual empirical facts, no doubt. But. What we lose and what I try to do is go, okay, what is the larger narrative of in multiple narratives? Mm-hmm. So is this making sense in a larger scheme of things? So mm-hmm. is this possibly somebody's agenda? Is that why they're being uncharitable? I think there's way too much of, what's the other line? Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Mm-hmm. The way statistics are used, and especially political argument, it's like, yeah, you're right, but it's... You're like looking at one portion of like a multifaceted issue. And if you disagree with the one thing, like yelling starts and name calling starts or presumptions of you're a bad person. As soon as that happens, no more progress happens. Yep. You know, everything shuts down. The minute somebody's holding so tightly to their rightness and sitting in their rightness and being all right about everything. Whoever screams the loudest is the most right. Yes. You know, that's just not productive. It's not useful. And it's not going to change anything. Well, NPR did a a fantastic uh, opinion article today um, saying, does individualism actually do more altruism? Now, that you define individual altruism in the like philosophy, the philosophical schools they came from? No. But their point is that the more people are empowered individually, uh, economically speaking, in terms of legal and civil rights, that what tends to occur is more charity. Mm-hmm. And it, I thought it was a great piece by NPR. Um, actually reminds me of some stuff Oscar Wilde said, too. <laughs> uh, that individualism isn't wanting to be yourself, it's wanting other people to act like you are. Wow. Or selfishness is that. That's how he defines selfishness, is wanting other people to be exactly how you are. Interesting. And he, he got all flowery, literally, that the rose doesn't look at the lily and go, you have to be a rose. Right. Just be a rose and be a lily. But we're out of time. Oh. I know. It flew by, Joey. It did fly by. And folks, go check out A Doll's House at the Cloverdale Playhouse. CloverdalePlayhouse.org. CloverdalePlayhouse.org. Or you can call us at 262-1530. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. And I'd love to have you back. Anytime, man. I love talking to you. We talk about big stuff. Oh, that's me. (laughs) I need to learn to relax. Thank you, folks. (laughs)